Tom didn't have this announcement, but we do need to add that Cheryl Clemens, that's another of J.C. and Ann's daughters, will have surgery on June 7th. And um, so we are certainly I want to remember her in our prayers that all will go well with that uh, surgery. It does not involve a cancer situation, so, but it, uh, it is surgery nonetheless, and certainly we want to remember her uh, in our prayers. As far as we know, there, it does not involve anything of that nature. So, uh, But the Watkins family obviously facing uh, many challenges at this time, uh, as others of our families, and uh, we certainly want to keep all of these uh, in our prayers, the Hendersons and, and others as well. Um, also, I want to remind you that I mentioned this morning that if uh, others who would like to come over next door afterwards tonight to the house, which is now the Good News Today studio, and to see that setup that we plan to start using Wednesday night after Bible study as we seek to take two programs over there in our first, uh, first run of that, uh, we'd certainly be glad to have you come by and see how things worked out with the sets and the uh, decorating of the sets and uh, all of that, and many of you had a part in it. Some of the items that are in there you've donated, and uh, uh, we appreciate it. Got some, uh, got an old radio in there that uh, John said he listened to a replay of the 1938 World Series on, and uh, he remembers hearing. And on that old radio, that was the we found out that was the Cubs and the Yankees, by the way, and the Cubs lost, of course. <laughs> but, uh, but. Um, and then Jerry Wright's bringing us one uh, that uh, heard the, uh, the famous words, this is a day that will live in infamy as World War II was declared. That old radio goes back a ways. But we've got a candlestick phone that the Truett's donated that kind of like the Andy Griffith show, you know, when you see him pick up that phone. And uh, it's an interesting, the desk that, uh, that came over. They used to be back here that they used to count money on, wasn't it, uh, Ron, you told me? that. Uh, uh, that uh, Mary Ruth's uh, father uh, uh, used, and uh, so there's a, there's a lot of history over there uh, in that uh, house now, and it's worked out, I think, very well, and I certainly uh, give a lot of credit to my good wife for uh, all of her decorating skills and, and planning there, but we'd be delighted for you to come by and, and take a look at it uh, if you'd like to uh, after services uh, uh, tonight. We're nearing the conclusion of our study of the great book of James. And um, uh, the Lord willing, uh, next week we will conclude uh, with uh, uh, verses uh, 16 through 20 of uh, the epistle of James, an epistle that, as we have mentioned, has been called the gospel of common sense because it uh, has so much practical teaching for pure uh, living, and uh, it is a great uh, epistle. We're in chapter 5 of James, as we said, nearing the conclusion of our study, and uh, we will look at uh, verse uh, 12, which seems to pretty much stand alone in terms of context, although it does deal with a subject that uh, James returns to time and again in this epistle, and that is the subject of the tongue and the use of the tongue and guarding our use of the tongue. And in verse 12, uh, the use of the tongue here with which James deals is the use that involves uh, swearing, uh, taking certain kinds of oaths. And I stress certain kinds of oaths because uh, that's, I believe, what the context indicates, that this is not a prohibition against 
any kind of oath, but that it is definitely a very serious and sobering prohibition against certain kinds of oath. He says, but above all, brethren, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, it's difficult. In fact, uh, we would be remiss in looking at this verse in James 5.12 without calling attention to some very similar statements made by the Lord back in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you'll look at that, it's in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 33. Again, the Lord says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So very, very similar statement from our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount to the one here in verse 12, where he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. As we look at these verses, not only here in James, but the admonition that the Lord gave, we need to understand what the Jews were in uh, the habit of doing. And that is they were in the habit of, um, of swearing in various ways and um, in a manner to avoid, avoid keeping certain oaths. They practice what might be today called mental reservation, uh, where they claim that if they didn't swear in a certain way or take an oath in a certain way, uh, that it didn't have to be kept. I have read of one rabbi who claimed that you could give an oath or swear an oath with your lips, but you could annul it in your heart. And so that's how they played tricks and the kind of tricks they played with their words. In other words, I didn't, I didn't swear by the God of heaven, they might say, but, but by, uh, by the gold of the temple or, or by heaven or by earth. In other words, they used these various oaths to uh, basically exercise mental reservation and to keep from performing certain oaths. Also, they were making these oaths in regard to every kind of frivolous matter that could be imagined. And so it was something that is clearly well known by those who uh, have studied the habits of the Jews that they were in the habit of doing that. And it's obvious from what James writes here and from what the Lord said about it in the Sermon on the Mount that obviously they were in the habit of doing this. Does this, however, uh, preclude uh, a solemn oath? Well, no, because we read about uh, solemn oaths in in the scripture. In fact, going back to uh, going back to the Old Testament and to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, there was no question about the fact that there were certain oaths that were taken solemnly uh, that were enjoined upon the people, as a matter of fact. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, there the scripture says, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You shall take oaths in his name. But what kind of oaths? Not the kind that the Jews had become uh, uh, habitually involved in, 
uh, playing mental games with them and also swearing by everything under the sun in uh, regard to every frivolous matter that one could uh, possibly imagine. Uh, also, again, very, almost the same words are spoken again in Deuteronomy 10 in verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. And so obviously solemn oaths uh, were, not, uh, were not prohibited, but it was the abuse of this that James deals with and that the Lord obviously deals with in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, in that particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord was saying, you have heard, etc. You have heard it has been said. You have heard this. In other words, he is correcting a great many of the traditions that had crept into the Jewish practice that had nothing to do with the law of Moses, but were simply additions to that law based upon the traditions of the Jews. And this kind of oath-taking was among those things. But obviously, we find uh, in Scripture... Uh, that oaths could be taken if they were taken properly. In fact, uh, in Hebrews 6 and verse 13, we have this statement. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He could swear by no one greater, obviously. He swore by himself. And there were occasions when the Apostle Paul would make references to God as his witness uh, in certain matters that were solemn matters. And so it is not the case that, that uh, a condemnation is being issued here by James nor by the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount uh, against all kinds of oaths. Now someone might say, well, but wait a minute. In verse 12, he says, uh, or with any other oath. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Would that not uh, include every other oath? Well, as we've said, under the Old Covenant, uh, there were certain oaths that were certainly enjoined upon the people or allowed uh, by the people. And it's interesting here that any other oath is a, is a word for any other, uh, and there are two for other. There is the other of the same kind, and then there's a word in the original language of the New Testament that means other of a different kind. Uh, we get the word heterodoxy from one of these words, heteros, which means of any kind, any kind, period. Then there's the word alos, which means of the same kind, another or other of the same kind. And it's interesting that in this verse, James says, or with any other oath. And the word other there is other of the same kind, not other of any kind whatsoever. Therefore, he's limiting here the context in which he's saying any other oath to any other oath that fits the description that's being condemned here. And therefore, I do not believe that an oath in a court of law is under consideration here by James, nor do I believe it was under consideration by, by the Lord. Now, I recognize that courts of law do allow uh, a witness, as a witness gets before uh, the court, and is about to take the witness stand, I recognize that courts generally allow an affirmation, uh, as they call it, rather than putting your hand on the Bible, as one used to do, and maybe still does, I don't know, uh, but, uh, and saying, uh, I swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. There are those who have a problem with doing that, and therefore the courts recognize or allow an affirmation, 
which is just as binding as the other oath. But I do not believe that the oath of the court of law is under consideration here or being condemned here. But the kind of frivolous oath-taking, the kind of mental reservation that the Jews were guilty of doing. Having said that, I certainly have absolutely no problem with someone who, for conscience sake, does feel uncomfortable taking that kind of oath in court and wants to affirm. That's certainly right and fair to do that, and uh, we should not criticize that uh, at all. But I think here, under consideration, based upon the context and the words that are used here, uh, he is dealing with a, a practice of the Jews that had gotten completely out of hand and totally violated uh, the idea of taking the solemn oaths that Deuteronomy mentions uh, and uh, that the New Testament also uh, gives us examples concerning. So we do need to be careful about our language. And certainly, the kind of thing that we hear day in and day out, where God's name is used frivolously, where God's name is uh, used in a flippant way, is repugnant and sickening, and you just get sick and tired of hearing it because you hear it so much today uh, as people use the name of God uh, in a very flippant and uh, frivolous way. The Old Testament enjoined not taking the Lord's uh, name in vain, obviously, and that's why the Jews, many of them, started playing games with that. So they wouldn't use the name of God, but they'd use other things uh, other than that and use them to play mental games with those to whom they were uh, dealing. Let your yes be yes and your no, uh, no. And we've talked about some of the euphemisms, remember, in uh, a sermon of the past about uh, certain euphemisms for God that have crept into the language of, uh, of many Christians and uh, that are milder forms of, of God. And we get used to goodness and gosh and some things, some words like that that are really, if you look them up in the dictionary, they are euphemisms for the name of God. They sound a little milder, but their origin is uh, in the uh, name of God. And so we need to be careful about our language and simply uh, make our yes, yes, and our no, no. It's like the old situation people used to talk about in making deals, you know. On a handshake, you could rely upon that as a binding deal. Now you need a contract that is thorough and make sure you read the fine print very carefully. Uh, well, uh, let a handshake uh, bind an agreement and let a yes be yes and a no be no. Now in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is any among you suffering? You know, as we just simply stop and think about that question, based upon the announcements that have been made even tonight and that are made regularly here, we know that there are those among us who are suffering. This context is a context in which James wrote to those who were indeed suffering. Many of them were suffering at the hands of their oppressors, suffering persecution from those who opposed Christianity. They were suffering from affliction, from hardship, from, from much difficulty. And this word for suffering here, when he asks, is any among you suffering, literally means to suffer evil, to suffer evil. And some of these to whom James wrote were suffering evil. There were those to whom other New Testament writers penned their inspired words who were suffering evil at the hands of those who were persecuting uh, Christians. Outward bodily suffering, inward mental anguish, all of this 
certainly would be involved. And sorrow and suffering and pain, indeed all of the burdens of life at one time or another, fall upon the shoulders of God's people. But here James makes clear that the proper attitude of the suffering Christian is shown in worship, not in oath-taking or vain swearing of any kind or blaming God for that suffering. If you're suffering, do what? If anyone is suffering, let him pray. You know, in times of suffering, man may blame God for it or go to God for relief from it. And obviously, the latter is what we should do. Not blame God for the suffering, but go to God in prayer for relief from it and help with that burden. And we need to depend upon each other. We need to ask God for wisdom to cope with problems rather than blaming him for those problems. Whatever the nature or character of our affliction, it's always right and it's proper and it's beneficial to pray and to pray fervently. But we need to remember our obligation to the Lord, not just when we're suffering, but at all times. And prayer needs to be a regular part of our lives in the good times, obviously, as well as in the times of suffering. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Then he asked, is anyone cheerful? And that's not the idea of fun or frivolity when he talks about cheerfulness, but it's a disposition of friendliness, joyfulness, pleasantness, agreeableness, one who's free of anxiety, one who's free of disturbing problems. The word carries the exact opposite idea of suffering. It may be that the suffering one and the cheerful one uh, may be the same man that James has in mind. If, if he's suffering at one time, then pray. If he's cheerful, having gone to God in prayer and gotten relief from that burden and feeling better about it, then, then by all means, sing. Sing psalms or praise to God. Praise has been called the highest form of prayer. It's the natural expression of a heart that's contented, and of a heart that is thankful. And if we're to play, pray when we're afflicted, it's certainly proper to express praise when we're not afflicted and when we are content. But in either case, we should show our deep need to God as we go to God in all times. Let him what? Sing praise or sing psalms. Sing psalms. And that word sing comes from the word soleto or psalo. It's the present active imperative in the New Testament to sing a hymn, to celebrate the praises of God in song, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon. And literally, it's in a tense which means let him keep on singing. If you're cheerful, then keep on singing. Keep on singing. Now, this is one of the verses that we have in Scripture that gives us authority for what we do in worship and praise to God. And that is to sing. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing about singing and playing here. Simply about singing. And this word has had a varied meaning throughout the years. Uh, it has signified the act of plucking out the hair, the idea of solo here that is translated singing as in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And we've talked about that in lessons on 
uh, instrumental music and music to God, what we're to do in our worship to God. But it has at times in the past, the, the derivation of the word, the etymology of the word has indicated at one time plucking out the hair or snapping a carpenter's string or twanging the strings of an instrument. But in the New Testament, and by the time we come to New Testament times, the word solo means simply to sing. But its basic meaning is to pluck or to twang. But in the New Testament, it's metaphorically seen that the chords of the heart, the chords of the heart are to be plucked. That's what we pluck. Remember Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, making melody, soloing. That is, plucking or twanging the strings of the heart. Making melody where? In the heart. Pluck or twang the strings of the heart, in other words. Now, we don't literally have heart strings, but we use that term metaphorically as a figure of speech. There are those, tragically, who will try to justify the use of instrumental music in worship by using some of the earlier meanings of this word solo, but they're not able to follow their argument to its logical conclusion. Because those who advocate instrumental music say no one can approach God, or they say that one can approach God with or without it. In other words, they'll say, well, if you want to praise God without instruments, that's fine. But if we want to praise God with instruments, that's fine too. In other words, you can approach God with it or you can approach God without it. It's a matter of personal choice, they would tell us. It's a matter of expediency. However, think about it. If the instrument is inherent in the word solo, that is, if it means to use a stringed instrument to pluck or string, uh, or twang the instrument, a stringed instrument, then you can't you can't solo without it if that's inherent in the word. If it's right there in the meaning, you've got to do it. It's either there or it isn't there. And if it's in it, in other words, when you see the word solo, as in Ephesians 5, making melody, if that word solo includes the instrument, if that's what it means, then how can you worship God without the instrument? You couldn't. He tells us to solo. And if solo means the instrument, then you've got to have the instrument to do it. But if it's contended that the instrument is included, and it is intended or included uh, according to some, then what are the conclusions that follow? If the instrument is inherent in the meaning of the word, then it's impossible to solo without an instrument. You've got to do it. But think about this. Since each individual is commanded to solo, make melody, and it means the instrument, it includes the instrument according to some, since each individual is commanded to do it, then each individual must personally twang the strings of a mechanical instrument in worship to be acceptable to God. And if you wanted to prepare people to worship acceptably, it would mean that they would have to be assisted in using those instruments. You'd have to train me. <laughs> You'd have to train me. You'd have to train a lot of people, wouldn't you? And only stringed instruments could be used. Only stringed instruments could be used. Since these are the only types which could be twanged or plucked. 
That would eliminate all the wind instruments, such as organs, horns, etc. Now, in light of the fact that not one of the advocates of instrumental music in worship is willing to accept these obvious conclusions, it must be concluded that they have very little respect for their own argument because they won't follow it to its logical conclusion. There's no question about the fact that dozens of the world's most profound Greek scholars say the New Testament meaning of the word solo does not include the mechanical instrument and that its meaning today is simply to sing. The Greek Orthodox churches whose members mostly speak Greek have never used mechanical instruments of music in their worship. That might ought to tell us something, since they do know the language. As far as instrumental music is concerned, our Lord never authorized it. No apostle ever sanctioned it. No New Testament writer ever commanded it. And no New Testament church ever practiced it. Nor can we, and be pleasing to God. Its use came about with the apostasy in the church, and it is used today with no greater sanctioning than the burning of incense or the counting of beads or the sprinkling of babies or many other things that one might cite. Now let's go to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then on to verse 15, our final verse for tonight. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Is any among you sick? What kind of sickness is it? This is obviously physical illness. He's not using this figuratively for spiritual sickness. He's obviously talking about physical illness. And so we have to conclude that it is possible for children of God to get sick. And sickness is a physical ailment, the ailment that eventually comes to all of us, whether we're good or bad, eventually we are going to get sick. It happens, doesn't it? Doesn't mean the individual who gets sick was guilty of some specific sin. Not at all. There were sick people in the early church just as they have sick people today. Now here he says, let them call for the elders of the church. The elders of the church. What church? Well, the, the local church, the local congregation would be under consideration because elders were to oversee only the congregations that were among them. So the elders in this case would be the elders over a particular flock, over a particular congregation. They supervise the local congregation, not the church as a whole. And all New Testament churches, when they're fully organized, had a plurality of elders. And the same is true today. And he says, and let them pray over him. Not literally necessarily over his body, but to pray in his behalf. Let them, notice, let them pray over him. The them obviously refers to these elders. And then he says, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It seems uh, fairly obvious here that the use of this oil had a symbolic meaning and not a medicinal 
uh, meaning. And as we look further at the context, I believe we can see that. It served as a token of the power of God by which this healing was accomplished. And the anointed, uh, the anointing was to be done in the name of the Lord, that is, by His authority. The Lord ordained that this should be done. The blessing which went with it would be accomplished by the Lord, not by the oil, but by the Lord. This shows the healing to be miraculous healing because we're talking about a time when miraculous healing was still possible. We're not talking about a time now uh, where miraculous healing is still possible, though some mistakenly think that it is. But at this time, obviously it was. And notice this. He doesn't say that the anointing of the oil will, will save him, but verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. The prayer of faith will save the sick. Now, whose prayer is it? Not the prayer of the sick one, but this is the prayer of faith by the elders who are doing the healing. Not prayer and oil that accomplished it, but the prayer of faith that accomplished it. The oil, seemingly from the context, would have been a symbolic thing, as we said. And to save in this case, as it's used here, would be to restore his health, physically speaking. He says, and the Lord will raise him up. Remember, and we've talked about at times in the past, that those who had miraculous gifts of healing had to stir up those gifts. Remember on the occasion when the man who had an epileptic son had come to the disciples of the Lord and they were unable to, to do anything, then he brought him to the Lord and the Lord uh, healed him, cast out the demon immediately and then in effect chastised the disciples for their lack of faith. If they had had faith as a grain of mustard seed, they would be able to say to this mountain, move here or there and it will be done. That whole context indicates miraculous faith. That is faith in their miraculous abilities. We don't have that kind of faith today because we don't have that kind of ability today. We don't have the ability to heal miraculously. Therefore, that's a kind of faith that is not pertinent to us today. We're to have faith, but not faith in that same sense. These elders were obviously miraculously endowed elders who had, by the laying on of the apostles' hands, been given the ability miraculously to heal. But they nonetheless had to heal by faith and by stirring up that gift that had been given to them. And so the context here indicates, I believe clearly, that we're dealing with a miraculous context at a time when miraculous gifts were still available. And thus these elders are elders who had those gifts. The Lord will raise him up, he says. Incidentally, this shows the Catholic doctrine of extreme unction to be false because they use this verse to support anointing one who's about to die. But here, the anointing was done in connection with raising the sick, raising the sick up, not anointing the sick to die. And also, it was not a priest who was to do it. It was the elders who were called upon to do it. And notice he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Whom does the Lord forgive in terms of sin? He forgives the sins of his people only when they what? When they repent and turn away from those sins. 
And so we have to conclude that that's implied here, that if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. What has to be implied is that the, the individual desires to be forgiven and seeks that forgiveness because forgiveness doesn't come without repentance. Here's a passage that obviously had application to the period of the miraculous gifts in the church and was limited to that time. We must not assume that it has application for us today. Not that we cannot call for the elders to pray for us. We should. And uh, certainly we should ask for the prayers of brothers and sisters in Christ, but we do not expect those prayers to bring about a miraculous healing. And obviously what we have just read here was not to be a universal practice even during the apostolic age. It was not a universal practice, but was given by God for a limited time and for special purposes. How do we know that? We know that because there were some of the early saints who got sick and died, obviously, and who were not healed in this way. They frequently got sick and died. And so while those to whom this passage particularly applied received with no exceptions the blessing of healing and forgiveness, there were others of the New Testament period of time who were often afflicted without relief. Without relief. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times to the Lord to remove it. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Timothy had a stomach disorder and he was not miraculously healed of that stomach disorder. Paul left a man named Trophimus in Miletus. He left him there sick. He left him there sick. So obviously the application of this text is limited in time but also even then it was not a universal thing that applied in every situation to every Christian. It seems clear, as we said, that from all the facts we can gather, these elders were miraculously endowed through the laying on of apostles' hands and were therefore able to participate in miraculous acts of healing in the manner that is described here. Now, in those days, this kind of healing was done independently of means, that is, through direct miraculous healing. He still today heals, God does. But he heals today by means and through various techniques of healing which we have available to us in our world today. But it is still God to whom we pray for that healing. And we pray that providentially that healing will occur. God once fed people miraculously, independent of means. Does God still feed people today? Yes, but not, not miraculously. The seed, the sower, the soil, the sunshine, the harvest, the mill, the baker are all means to that end of feeding people today. And we can certainly and should pray, give us this day our daily bread, but we don't expect to sit down after we finish that prayer and wait for the loaves to drop wrapped in cellophane from heaven. We understand there's a part we're to play, an effort we're to exert, and ask God to bless those efforts. It's as foreign to God's plan today to expect miraculous healing independent of means 
as it is to expect him to feed us as Jesus did when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. That's just not the way God works today because the miraculous served its purpose and has been taken out of the way. And one who rejects those means today and still wants to look for the miracle today and still insists that he can have that miracle today and needs that miracle today and rejects the means and yet he alleges to depend upon God alone is actually rejecting God. He claims to depend upon God alone and wants the miraculous healing, but he in doing so actually rejects God because God has told us he doesn't work that way today and he's rejecting the means that God has chosen to work through today. Anyone who is saved from death's door today by the so-called modern miracle drugs is assuredly healed by the power of God as were those in the first century who were healed by Christ himself. And we ought to be thankful for these great memes that come to us from the great benevolent hand of God Almighty. And we certainly ought to be thankful to God for the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ, and show that thankfulness through our obedience. And if you haven't done that by obeying the gospel, we plead with you to do it tonight. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of your sins, confess him as Lord and Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to him as a wayward child in repentance and confession of sin, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing.